welcome to Creativity Conversations. This is episode 14, and I am delighted to be speaking today with Lorna Davis. Lorna, welcome. Thanks. Hi, Nina. For those of you who haven't been on this call before, I started it because I was really interested in having people get a different understanding about the nature of creativity. So we have had some amazing conversations, and the way this one is going to roll is that Lorna and I are going to be chatting for about half an hour, and then we will open it up to any of the listeners on the call, and you can ask your questions or share your comments or observations then. So right now, I'm going to read Lorna's bio. Lorna is a leader, coach, and speaker. Her TED Talk on radical interdependence has had over 2 million views. That's pretty amazing. Lorna has served as president of multinational consumer goods companies for over 20 years in Danone, Kraft, and Mondelez. She's been a key leader in Danone's purpose journey and is a global ambassador for the B Corp movement. In 2017, Lorna served as CEO and chairwoman of Danone North America, where she established that $6 billion entity as a public benefit corporation and achieved B Corp status in 2018, making it the largest B Corp in the world. Lorna was a member of the Global Board of Electrolux for six years and is now a member of the Social Mission Board of Seventh Generation, the Integrity Board of Sir Kensington, both companies owned by Unilever, the Advisory Board of Radical Impact, and the Board of B-Lab Global. And Lorna is also now a coach. Her current interests and priorities are in three areas, which we'll talk about later. Purpose and business, which means combining financial metrics with social and environmental measures, women and their leadership challenges, and wildlife recovery, especially rhinos. So Lorna, so good to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. We've got lots to talk about. <laughs> so you and I met in, I think it was 2018, and Michael Neal's Creating the Impossible. Yep, I think so. I think that was it. So I've got a lot of questions for you about creativity. And before we talk about Michael's CTI program, how would you define creativity? And how do you see its role in your life? I guess today I see creativity as the ability to create something from nothing. And if you had asked me this question a few years ago, I would have come with one of those pat answers like, oh, I'm not creative because I thought pretty much everything that I did was derivative. I never sort of valued myself as being creative. I never valued creativity much in my world. Now I see everyone's creative and I'm certainly creative and the ability to, the world is just constantly creating and generating. So I, I don't have a really neat answer except that, uh, except that. That's as good as I got. That's pretty good to be. <laughs> so let's talk about, if we can, your CTI project, because that seemed to be quite a creative project that involves some serendipity and just following the breadcrumbs. And it seemed like it was something a little different than the way you would normally go after something. Yes. CTI is short for Creating the Impossible, and it's a project run by, by Michael Neal that I don't even really know why I signed up, but it seemed like a good idea, which is kind of how I see the world working these days. You had to pick something that had less than 20% chance of success that made you gasp, grin, or giggle. Uh, and that was a completely foreign concept to me. You know, I came from the world of goals and, you know, odds and, you know, being specific and being held to account. This idea of sort of randomly just sort of lurching at something that may or may not come off. In fact, it was designed to not come off. 
seemed like a really, you know, new idea. Uh, and so um, the idea that occurred to me was, I thought, completely insane and totally impossible. So I have been friends for a long time with a man who lives in Central Park. He has slept there for many years, um, used to be an addict, uh, and around about 17 or 18 years ago had, I guess, what you would call a moment of grace where everything changed for him and he gave everything up and couldn't really understand what had happened to him until he discovered Eckhart Tolle or Eckhart Tolle. I don't really know how you say his name and has subsequently become a huge devotee of um, Eckhart Toller. And so I thought that it would be very cool to have Eckhart Toller come to Central Park and meet him. Of course, I don't know him. I wasn't even really a fan myself. So I thought, well, that's crazy. But it kind of made me smile. And the reality was that three months or so later, that happened. Uh, Eckhart Toller did come to New York and he did come to the park and met Armando. And so that whole journey completely changed it changed, I'm going to get emotional, I changed my life because I saw how differently the world works than I thought it did. I used to think that the world was about um, me imposing my will on it, forcing things to happen. And, you know, I used to say stuff like, if it's to be, it's up to me and all this kind of stuff. And now I see that the world is just an extraordinary partner and that it's a dance between me and creativity, the universe, wisdom, God, whatever you want to call it. So what do you do with that, that huge change in your worldview? How is your life different now? Well, first of all, I cry a lot <laughs> um, in wonder, really, whereas I used to kind of keep it neat and buttoned up. I think it's been a gradual process. You know, I'm a big fan of David White, the poet, um, and he has a great, um, he has a poem called The Road Beckoning. Uh, and he did a webinar series last month or the month before that I attended. And he said something that really made sense to me. He said, you know, we are always becoming something new. And yet our um, mental idea of who we are is out of date, old fashioned. And it's actually resistant to this new us that's becoming that is effectively a stranger. Uh, and he uses the story of the Camino de Santiago de Compostela in, in Spain and and says, when you're on that kind of pilgrimage, you don't actually use your name. You use the word pilgrim. <clears throat> you call yourself pilgrim. You call other people pilgrim because as soon as we say our names, we lock ourselves into a historical perspective of who we are. And so what I've noticed over these last few years is a gradual shifting from the sort of attachment that I had to all of my, you know, that whole bio thing you read is like, I used to think that was what I was. That's what I am. It's not what I am at all. It's a bunch of things that I did. But who I am is emerging all the time. And it surprises me. And sometimes that makes me uncomfortable because I kind of have this fantasy that I'm supposed to be stable and consistent and whatever. But fact is, I'm not. Uh, in this moment, I have no clue what I'm going to say next. When I look at you, you are a completely new human than the one that I have in my mind that you should or could be. And so the more comfortable I get with that, that idea, the more alive my world seems, the more joyful my world seems. So yeah everything's changed and sometimes my old identity of myself or my old idea of myself gets a little unsettled by that 
but it gets over itself, you know? Well, that's really beautiful. You were, had that experience with Armando and you were just, I know a little bit about it because we were in, in conversation during that. So you just, just let ideas come to you. I mean, it didn't seem like you did any trying to figure it out or planning in advance. You just kind of threw spaghetti at the wall. Well, I'd love to say it was as neat as that. It wasn't quite, it wasn't quite as kind of creative as that because, you know, I've had years of, like I said, being disciplined and planning. But I noticed there was something about the fact that I didn't think I would do it that freed me. And what I noticed is that every time I tried to muscle it, it was like the best way for me to describe it, Nina, is there was like a, a, it was like a thread of like a spider's thread. And every time I tried to muscle it, force it, push it, take credit for it, because that was a big thing, you know, I would feel it was like the thread started to bend and and threatened breaking. And as soon as I dropped that and did exactly what you're suggesting through spaghetti at the wall, sort of followed notions, random sort of curiosities, things moved and they moved unpredictably. They moved at a speed that I never would have imagined. They moved in a way I would never have imagined, but they, but they unfolded. They kind of flowered. But I noticed the tension between me wanting to push it. And very important, this wanting to take credit. You know, I wanted to be important. I wanted to be able to say, you know, that this old me, you know, wanted to be able to say, look what I did. And now when I look at it, I mean, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't done something. So it's not like I lay on the couch and ate Doritos and watched television and then it just happened. I mean, I, I did something, but a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then the universe kind of joined me. Um, and I, I also, you know, obviously there were a lot of other people in this process. You know, I, I speak in my, in my TED talk about interdependence. You know, if I look at the critical individuals that picked up threads that I dropped on Facebook or in conversations that kind of wanted to help me. Because I think that's the other interesting thing about it is I've noticed that in, in, in the time since is that if I'm in the pursuit of something sort of small-minded and mean-spirited and or, or, or small and, and sort of self-centered. The world doesn't work so well like this. But if I'm in the service of something that feels big and important, then other people want to help. They want to kind of join in. So it feels very different from the way that I used to operate and in a way that I could have imagined. It seems like the number of things that you did in the process of making that happen were just, they seemed random, but what you're saying about not having anything on it and being curious sounds like very different ways of operating than what you were used to doing. Very. So I'll give you an example. And this, it's a really interesting sort of notion around identity. I have, I'm, I'm conscious of how I have these kind of statements that I am this and I am not that. You know, I have all these theories about who I apparently am. And one of the theories that I have is that I am not a writer. I don't write. I don't know how to write. I'm not interested in writing. I have a litany of stories about my lack of ability to write. I mean, who cares? But I did. But it's somewhere along the process relatively early on, I realized that I needed to have something to explain who Armando is. Because I, I how can I explain this, you know, homeless guy sleeping on a bench in Central Park that loves Eckhart Tolle? It's a ridiculous story. So I randomly 
landed up in front of my computer, apparently writing, because of course I landed up writing a story about who he was, which then found its way to Eckhart Tolle's first publisher and blah, blah, blah. So the process of writing wasn't about me being a writer. It was the fact that something apparently needed to get written in order for something to actually happen. And so then writing occurred. And so I I feel like that's sort of how it's been a lot. You know, there were lots of other little things like that, but a lot of things since then. And, And I noticed how opinionated I am and how opinionated my clients are about what they are and are not and can and cannot do. But if something needs to be done in service of something, apparently it gets done. Even if we are not supposed to be good at it or not supposed to be capable of it. Kind of intriguing. Right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking the other day about, uh, this is a little bit of a jump, but about creativity and the issues of vulnerability versus polish, because I think that's what's included in what you just described. You weren't looking to create a polished piece. You were in service of something bigger than your ego. Yes. Oh, this is such an interesting question, Nina, because I I don't really know what I think about this, but I'll tell you what I see so far. So when I did my TED talk, which by the way, if you'd said to me, you know, you're going to be doing a TED talk, I would have gone, hell no. I mean, it was never in my plan, but apparently I landed up doing a TED talk. And one of the things that the TED people tell you is really you've got two choices here. You either um, effectively wing it and you don't really like totally wing it, but you, you know, have your headings and you kind of, you know, make it up around headings, which is how most of us make most of us, certainly how I've made speeches my whole life. Uh, And the other alternative is you learn the thing off by heart. They call it happy birthday good. So good that, you know, you don't have to think about just like when you sing happy birthday. They tell you, do not get stuck between these two things. They call that the sort of desperate you, which is where you start learning it and you've half learned it, but you're not that good. So then you really look weird and stilted. So I thought, well, gosh, I've never done this before. I'll take their advice. I've never learned a speech ever in my life, but I'm going to do happy birthday good. And I did. I mean, I could, I could tell, I could do that speech standing on one foot, listening to Taylor Swift's album Lover, which I know off by heart as well now because I'd never done it before and because they told me that was a good idea and I thought I'd give it a go. And what I discovered is that there is a new freedom on the other side of that kind of discipline. So that was actually really hard work for me to learn that thing. And I, and I, I don't know how, you know, if anybody listening to this call has, you know, does that routinely, but most of us don't learn things off by heart, mm. but it was so wonderful on that day to be able to stand up in front of people knowing that I, I didn't have to think about it. I really did know that speech and I made one little blip in the middle, but you know, that wasn't a problem. And so I did learn, I think there's something to play with now. That's what I'm kind of exploring now is how much preparation is enough and for what circumstance. So in this particular conversation, which is my favorite favorite, because it's just you and me, I have no clue who's listening to this. And I'm discovering what I think about things as we go along. I think it's great. And it's in service of you. And it's in service of what you're trying to do. But I'm doing a paid keynote address in a couple of months to a big organization. And I don't know that I feel good about just standing up in front of them for an hour on Zoom and just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze, Uh, you know, because a keynote has a different sort of flavor. 
Um, and so I'm going to kind of play with this because I, I do want, I want to do lots of pre-works so that I understand who they are and that I'm genuinely in service of them. And, you know, I, as I see one of our mutual friends, Nico Oliveri, uh, posted the other day that we should look in the mirror less and look out the window more. And I just have loved that expression that every time I get caught up with myself around what I should and shouldn't do, it's effectively looking in the mirror because I, all, it's, all it's about is what, what will people think of me? And the reality is they won't because nobody does. But if I look out of the window and I look in the direction of what I'm serving, and in this case, it's the people in that company, I will know when it comes close I will have done enough work with them to understand who they are and what they want. And I will do the right amount of prep. And maybe we'll talk afterwards and I'll tell you what the right amount of prep is, but I don't know what it is right now and that's okay. with. So I think, I, I think there's something new to see in this space and I'm sure it'll unfold in the months ahead. So in terms of creativity and really being open to whatever it is that is going to come through you, whether it's at, at that keynote or something else, it sounds like those issues of vulnerability versus polish can really get in the way. If I'm spending too much time, how, how, do, it, how do I look? How does this sound? Can I, can I stutter? Can I stall? And that's, that, I think, is a big stumbling block in the process of trying to let something new come through. Because it's so self-involved. Uh, uh, the privilege of having human beings listen to us say anything is a privilege. And it's all about them. And so whenever we're, whenever we, we, if we ever get anxious or nervous, it's because we're making it about us, period. As soon as we think about the other people, everything changes. Um, and so I think the process of, I feel like a real baby in the area of vulnerability, like a little toddler in that area of creativity, because it's such a new space for me. But it's, it strikes me that people whose lives are about sharing their creations, which is what your life is about. I mean, right behind you is your offerings to the world. It's the most vulnerable thing that you can do as a human. And it is such a gift to us. And so you, your ability to serve us is directly related to your ability to your willingness to be vulnerable. And I'm starting to see that about myself, but you know, only starting because it, like I said, it feels so such a new space. But clearly exciting and much more wide open than what you were used to doing. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect now, if anybody ever wonders if I'm actually South African, just listen to that yaw that sneaks out every now and then. I, I used to be so afraid of, I used to be so afraid, period, of so many things. And so I tried to kind of like numb down a lot of my fear in a, in a bless myself, you know, in such a sweet attempt at kind of trying to be okay. And now it seems such a ill-conceived attempt at trying to be okay. It's so much more fun to just to be alive to it, to be alive to the, the mystery of what's going to happen next, you know? Um, and so this sort of illusion that I had before of safety, because I used to kind of plan and prepare and it was like, it was like a sort of a weird daymare as opposed to a nightmare, you know, just like a way of living in a weird nightmare. It's really how it seems to me. Everything feels so different. Yeah. That's a very powerful statement. And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking that I was listening to a talk by Liz Gilbert, who said, when it comes down to it, 
the only thing that is stopping people from doing new things is fear. Whether it's fear about how am I going to look? Is yeah. this going to come out right? Will anybody like it? Does it matter? Well, yeah, well, yes. And what's interesting to me is, so, you know, on the subject of creativity, a group of my buddies and I, fellow coaches, we're running this program called Finding Comfort in the Uncomfortable, which if anybody wants to sign up, please feel free. Tinyurl.com slash 2020 hyphen comfort. But what, what I'm seeing about that is how irrelevant fear is. You know, so, so yes, I mean, you, you know, fear can stop you, but don't expect to not feel fear because fear's like part of the game, right? So about, um, about half an hour ago before our call, I suddenly felt anxious and I thought, oh, interesting, I'm anxious. Oh, I know. I have to do some work on my Rhino project. So how about I do the work on the Rhino project because I can fit that in before the call. And I got so involved in my work on that that, you know, I didn't have time to be anxious. Um, and it, it's so it's like, yeah, I mean, fear is just part of the game and discomfort is part of the game, but it doesn't need to stop us. So the thing again, when I, I and I love Liz Gilbert, the thing that, I find myself being, being so sad that I or other people might not do something because of something as small as fear. It's like, oh, no, why would we do that? Because then you deprive the world of your gifts. It's like if you said, I'm too, I'm too afraid to show that beautiful picture on my right with the woman with, I don't know what she's got, planets or whatever around her. Are there planets? I've decided they're planets. Yeah. And so if you said you were too afraid to show us, we wouldn't get to see it. Wouldn't that be terrible? So, yeah, I think fear is just part of the game. It's not a big deal. So you, you've actually been on both sides of that. So you know what it's like to be constrained by fear. And sure. you know what it's like to acknowledge it, but not let it be driving the bus. Yeah. And I think we all, uh, I mean, if, if there isn't anybody in this school who hasn't felt uh, fear constrain them, part of being human. And, and one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about collaboration and interdependence is because it's a great way of sort of uh, setting yourself up for support when you get into your little bumpy bits. So if there's a group of you working together on something, if you have a little fear blip, you've got a group of people around you who have got enough momentum. And then, you know, before you know it, you've kind of moved on and the fear has just dissipated. I find it easier to navigate the sort of ebbs and flows of my own weird overthinking when I've got a bunch of other people on the bus with me, you know? <laughs> right. Tell us about your Rhino project, because that wasn't something that was on your radar for no. very long, was it? it? All of a sudden it became a possibility and you started tracking that, if you don't mind the pun. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually it has been on my radar for a long time. I, you know, Glennon Doyle says that your point of action should be where your heart breaks. And it appears that I'm probably going to cry again and I should always have tissues with me, it seems poaching the poaching of rhinos breaks my heart and has for many many years since I first fell in love with rhinos as a young girl in South Africa and so in fact my creating the impossible project last year was to stop rhino poaching one there are three rhinos a day who are killed because of their horn because there are people in in particularly China and Vietnam who value uh, rhino horn and so I do think that choosing something that just breaks your heart is a really great place to lean in because there's so much energy and passion that's available to you. 
And so I decided that I would lean in there because it means so much to me. But I was also kind of curious because I don't know anything about, I didn't know anything about it and I didn't have any credibility at all. And so it was a great way to experiment with my, my view that radical collaboration or radical interdependence is a powerful mechanism for making change in the world. And so um, it's been a really fascinating journey and, and I'll give you the punchline first and then just you know, give you a few points. So I started the journey at the beginning of last year, researching, asking questions, watching documentaries that made me, you know, lie in the fetal position under my bed for two days, two weeks, two months at a time, and then realizing I didn't want to do that and just experimenting. And as I speak today, I've created a rhino charity in collaboration with a very well-established uh, wildlife conservation organization called Wildlife Conservation Network. And we have already given away $830,000 in grants in this last six months because of COVID causing a lot of you know, big drop in, in, in income for many of the places where rhinos live because of tourism and because of, of, of COVID. And so, in fact, we've given away the money before we launched the project. Um, it, it only sort of became official uh, last month. And it is a, it's been a fantastic lesson in working collaboratively with people in a space that I have so little understanding and so little credibility in. And it has the same sort of quality of the Armando project in the, you know, I could tell you how we got the 830,000 and who did what, but it was the most peculiar set of random connections between people that said, if you do this, I'll do that. And how about that? And no, not that, but yes, that. And it's been so humbling because so much of my, you know, I used to pretend that it was, I was collaborative, but actually, you know, when I was the CEO of a company, it's easy to be collaborative when, you know, you've got so much power, <laughs> it, it, you know, it can look like collaboration, but it's actually just, you know, it's just another version of exerting your will. In this case, it's, it's not like that. So it's been very, very humbling and really very touching to me that we've now got these nine projects, we can see our way to another four projects. And I've learned so much about people doing amazing work on the ground. So yeah, that's what's been happening in Rhino land. And um, uh, so I'm very excited. I spend a, a lot of my time on that project. Before I open the floor up to people who are on the call with us, I'm curious how you see the unfolding of creativity in collaboration rather, I was going to say, than individually, but then I was going to stop myself because it's never really individually. It's always dependent on other people. But when you're specifically working with a group of other people, how is creativity, the expression of it, different than if you are creating something pretty much on your own? Well, I guess the answer to the question is, is in a way simple for me because I've, I don't think I've ever created anything on my own, ever. I don't, I don't know how to, I, I don't think. Um, so for me, it's, it's um, 
I'm reminded of the quote, I seem to be very poetic today, I'm reminded of the quote by Mark Nepo, the poet, who said something like, there's something precious about the ability to, to lean in and listen and be changed by what you hear. So there's something about being with other people and listening to each other. So much of it's about listening, like listening to each other. I guess it's also about listening to yourself, but it's about listening to each other and then being changed by what you hear and then using that as kind of a springboard to the next thing. And every time I feel myself being in pain or being resistant, it's because I don't want to be changed by what I'm hearing. So, you know, I was in a rhino meeting this week and, you know, I, you know, one of the people started saying something and I didn't agree, you know, and I, and I, as I, I could feel myself, you know, my hands went like this and I mm, didn't agree. And as soon as I don't agree, you know, my ears shut down and the creative process shuts down and I, what, what am I doing? Just defending some opinion that I generally ill-conceived, ill-researched opinion, because I appear to have, as I said, opinions about everything. And as soon as I noticed myself doing that, I kind of caught myself and softened. And then I leaned in and she was saying something completely different from the thing that I thought she was saying, completely different. And something really, really interesting that led us somewhere else very different. And so that kind of dance I don't think there's anything more exciting than that for me I mean the idea of in a way and I'm projecting you know walking into a studio like you do and with a piece of paper and going I wonder what's going to I'm going to create today I'm not there yet I can't even I can't even begin to imagine that but the idea of getting on a call or in a room one day we'll be in a room with people again with people and seeing what are we going to create together I, I can't think of anything more exciting because of that endless dance of movement and listening. But I, I do think that this question of being, it comes back to, in a way, the very first thing I said in this, in this conversation, willing to be a different person at the end of, of an hour with, with people than I was at the beginning has changed everything. Beautiful. All righty. Let's open it up to any questions or comments from People who are on the call, you can raise your digital hand and I shall graciously unmute you. Let's go to Gary. Hello, Gary. Hello, darling. Hey, Gary. I still get to call you that. Hello, Lorna. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well, you too. Call her lo- darling, too, you know. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I, I could. You, know, <laughs> you said something a minute ago that I really found interesting when you were talking about you having been changed by what you were seeing and the very precise and stringent goal setting and stuff sort of started to fall away, if I, if I understood you right. And I'm just curious what you've seen about opportunities that you weren't able to see when you were in that blinded sort of condition of, yeah, got to go right there and that's the only place I'm going. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Oh, it's so interesting that you say this, Gary, because I see a few things. I'll say two specifically. The first is all of my goals were what I will call and what Michael calls, I think, and in order to goal. And I, I always had like, I'm going to, I'm going to achieve my sales budget of X dot, dot, dot in order to get promoted, you know, get my bonus, increase, will increase market share, make the boss happy. There was always a, an in order to. And I've discovered that in order to goals are dull, boring, and, and there's no there there because I always made that up, like that something would be at the end of something and that it, it was just invented. And so 
in order to goals by definition are a waste of time. And I, and I hear them, you know, in my, I've got a client at the moment who's looking for a new job and I just hear, you know, I'm going to get this job. And then in order to da, 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 none of which is true. And so disconnecting what might or might not be a good job might not, might or might not be fun from what she has decided is going to come from that is the interesting conversation to be had. And so that's certainly the conversation that I, that I have with myself a lot about goals. And the second thing is, and maybe it's connected to the first, but I'm just not very imaginative. So when I think of a goal, like I, I think they were called smart, measurable, yes, specific, measurable, accountable, something and something. I mean, as soon as I constrain a goal into something that I can measure and is likely to be achieved, it's generally not worth doing. Like, why would I bother? Because it's a tiny little thing that my little baby human brain has decided that I can do. And so it's so dull, not dull. It's it's, it's tiny because I haven't got the imagination. When I, when I decided that it would be cool to stop rhino poaching, I mean, that's ludicrous. I mean, how can I, that's not a goal. That's a dream. That's a fantasy. I can tell you that the, the path that has unfolded as a result of this dream has had more impact than I could have imagined. Than if I, whereas if I had tried to turn it into a little goal, it would have been puny. So I think that's as good as I've got. And I think, and, and I'm kind of almost embarrassed to say it, because if you asked me this question five years ago, I would have given you this whole long story about how I'd achieved so much of my life by being disciplined and goal-oriented. And it's nonsense. Yeah. When you, you constraining the goals you, the way you talked about them, it just drains the inspiration out of them. There, there's totally. nothing to be inspired by. No. Even, I mean, not only, not only can you not inspire anyone else? You can't even inspire yourself to, to your point, right? right? I mean, so yeah, that's what I got there. Thank you. That's great. Nice to see you. You too. So it sounds like what you've been metamorphosizing into is a whole, <laughs> if that's a word, <laughs> is a creative lifestyle. And not, I, I don't mean that in uh, necessarily an artistic sense, but it, creativity is always dancing around that question of what wants to happen next? What else can we do with this? You know, what else is possible? Which is a different lifestyle than the way most people live, which is very controlled, very predictable, very safe. And everything that you're sharing today is really about just jettisoning that and going into new territory, which is what creativity, innovation, new ideas, problem solving is all about. Yeah, it's in, yeah, it's interesting. I I don't I see it. I I don't know, but I'll I'll, I'll give it my best shot because I, I don't feel like I've jettisoned anything particularly. I just feel like I'm on a completely different planet. Do you know what I mean? So it's like um, to your point about what wants to happen next. The notion that life is living me rather than me living my life. And it really did feel like that is it feels very real to me. And I was thinking about it while I was doing yoga yesterday, that when you do yoga, pushing your feet into the ground counterintuitively gives you more height in a, in a standing pose. I was doing a triangle pose, which I don't do very well, but I try. And there was something about the idea of 
pushing down to lift up that inspires me. So the more I kind of ground into the life that is already flowing through me, the more things appear to appear. So it just feels like it feels like a completely different world. And, and you know, earlier on when I was saying to you that it's like waking up from a, a nightmare, I do feel like I spent, you know, 60 years, so probably 58, because I think I started to wake up a couple of years ago, but let's say close to 60 years, thinking that life happened one way, me winning it, getting it right, beating it fixing it. And now I go, wow, wow, that's amazing. How, wh- that's amazing that I lived like that. Now it's like life is coursing through me from the underneath, from my feet up. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, and I don't even call it, I mean, I do not call this process creative because it's just like not a, it's not even a word that really I resonate with particularly, but it feels alive and, 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 and interesting. And so I think by your definition, it, I mean, it's obviously creative. It's the only source of creativity, really. Well, just in the gesture that you were using of the, the difference between the fist and the closed hand and the open hand, the listening, the leaning yeah. in. Yeah. Wow. Really different. Yeah. And I do think there's something else that is touching to me and has been touching for me with my clients is just resting in the knowing that, that it's all okay. I mean, it seems really simple to just say that, but for close to 60 years, it never felt like it was okay. It felt like it was broken and I had to fix it. And if I didn't fix it, that something bad would happen. And I see so many other people operating in, from that place. And now I know in my bones, that's not how it works. The system can be trusted always, even when it feels weird. It's such a, so much gentler of a way to live this way. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Let's go to Nikon. Hey, Nikon, you're awake. Maybe. Hello, darling. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Gary can't say what I can. Hello, darling. <laughs> so nice to see you. You too. And, uh, so, I love your talk. I love everything you're saying. I think I remember in your bio that you also worked a lot in China and Asia yeah. with, with leaders in Asia. And I'm finding myself more and more working with them. And I'm just curious, like, if, you, if you could give the leaders here, given what you know about Asian culture and the way our premises are set up, like that's the best way I know how to describe it. What kind of gift would, would you give to them? So I lived in China for six years in Shanghai, and I um, there's no doubt that my time in China radically changed, and it radically radically changed me for a number of reasons. But the two that come to my mind are the first that I was so vulnerable mm-hmm. to the people around me because I couldn't speak the language and I didn't understand the culture at all. And mm-hmm. so that ability to lean in and lean on people changed my operating style. So I couldn't do this thing because I needed people. And so I needed to help. I needed their help in a different way. And so that really created a vulnerability that I had never had before. But the second thing was that I had never operated in a place where the premises were so very different, you know, and, and, and the whole notion of morality and the relationship between the government and the people in the country. I mean, it's completely different. So I think the, and, and I, and I think one of the things that is misleading in China is, you know, in my first few years, I, I used to sort of look at the surface of things 
and you know, there were those big rallies and you know, I had 10,000 people in my company and we used to do these big, you know, these huge events and these big speeches and everything. And on the surface of it, it looks like that's where it all happens. And in mm. fact, it looks like that when you see the way the governments operate and so on. But the way it all really, really happens is very differently than that. Much smaller, much more local, much more listening. And so I think, and, and one of the things that I think is impressive, but, and I can only speak about China really, Nikon, because I haven't worked in the rest well, of Asia particularly. Very similar, I, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> it, that, that the ability to genuinely listen to each other and to understand the vibes that are happening below the surface uh, is such an important part of leading. And so I think that making sure that you don't misunderstand the big game for being the real game, which is the day-to-day. Secondly, I tell you, Chinese women are the most underrated single group of people that I've ever dealt with. I learned when I would walk into a room, I would look around the room for the quietest Chinese woman in the room. And she almost always knew more than any than the rest of the room together. So there's a big gender thing in Asia. And I think that we misunderstand, ignore those dynamics at our peril and underestimate women at our peril. So I I would really spend a lot of time on that. And I think the third thing is language. I said this in my TED talk, but I say it again. So many people in Asia speak such good English and in the translation into English, they play a Western game that is not an authentic, uh, genuine local game. And so the more that we can have our conversations in local language, even if it takes a whole slew of translators, the better, because you see the genuine personalities, characteristics, strengths, and capabilities of people when they're operating in their own language. So that's all I got on that subject, Nicholas. That's incredibly impactful. I'm giving a workshop for a company tomorrow morning, so I will relay your message. And I totally agree about the quiet Asian woman. That is true in all Thai corporate companies I've worked at. And that's the first person, if I want to know what's the deal, that's the first person I find. It's oh. not the, the head guy, it's that lady. And, and everybody knows who she is too. Yeah, exactly. And interestingly, these, these big meetings, you know, they so quiet, but one-on-one, that's where they'll tell you everything, you know? So yeah, oh, it's good. I look forward to hearing how it goes tomorrow. And also, um, I, I learned this from my African friend from Benin last night at a talk and he comes up and he says, I want to testify. And I like to testify to Nina's creativity, her excellence in her hosting and the people she brings on and the conversations she, she has facilitated and, and how much opportunity you've given me to to get to know my heroes like Lorna and Steph and, and Marina better through this venue. And I just want to thank you very much, Nina. Oh, and, thank you. And you are also my darling. <laughs> <laughs> and you mine. Isn't that a great word, testify? Yeah. Yeah, like he, he showed up like in, in our super fail, he's like, I like asked audience, do you have any questions? And Dr. Roland shows up, I want to testify. And then I'm like, I don't know where this is going. And like after he does this amazing kind of reflection of me. I have a question. (laughs) I've learned that from him. So, yeah. (laughs) Nice. Thank you, Nikon. Go to Martin. Martin, hello. Hello, Nina. Hi, Lorna. Nice to to meet you on here. You too. Uh, Nikon, I appreciate your your shout out and uh, and best of luck to you tomorrow. We, me and Nikon had a, a conversation a few weeks ago and it kind of tied into what you were speaking about here. So I wanted to 
see if you can maybe go into it a little bit further. A Nikon kind of challenged me to live and, and kind of go about my coaching business without without fear. And I hate to admit to him on this call and <laughs> to everyone that I haven't exactly been doing it. And uh, I just wanted to, <laughs> to kind of hear your perspective on that about, I guess, becoming more vulnerable and sharing and doing more things despite the fear, because that seems to be, uh, seems to be coming up a lot over the last, uh, especially since he challenged me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so interesting because I don't think that it's possible to live without fear. So I, 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 I don't know about that, but um, just hold on a second. I need to speak to my dog. Stay there. Bye. <laughs> I, uh, the way that it seems to me, Martin, is when I hang out in spaces that matter a lot to me, my fear becomes just an irrelevant thing that happens every now and then. So if I take you know, the rhino thing, or if I take the subject of interdependence, or if I take the fact that people are living kind of a made up reality that's causing them pain, that really matters to me. And so um, when I feel fear, to have it stop me impact that seems to be odd. Like, why would I, why would I do that? Because it matters so much to me. So I think that's one thing is, is hanging out with other people, uh, hanging out in subjects that matter. That's the first thing. And the second thing is other people. Uh, I said it earlier on the call. I personally prefer being in projects with other people because as I go through my own weird feelings of fear and, and inadequacy, which come and go as they do because we're human, it just helps me to have other people in the same boat with me because we kind of egg each other on through the difficult bits. And so the question is, you know, is Nikon one of those guys who's egging you on through the difficult bits? He could be. Is it your coaching practice, your singular, or is it your coaching practice? Who, you know, your coaching practice wouldn't be a practice without your clients. So who are they in this? And, and how can they be part of your game rather than you doing too? them are the kinds of things that I would be asking. And I think on the subject of coaching in general, I, um, I realized that I had all sorts of invented ideas in my head about what a coaching practice is. I have no clue what a coaching practice is for me. I know that there are some people with whom I have conversations that apparently I call coaching. And some of those people I apparently charge and some of them I don't. And it seems to me just about as basic as that. And so it seems less scary when I don't call it a coaching practice. It just seems like a bunch of conversations that add up to a week of conversations and then add up perhaps to a month of conversations. So I don't know. And none of that seems scary. Whereas like having a coaching practice can occasionally perhaps occur as scary. So that's kind of, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. And it's funny you mentioned that my parent or my whole family today, they said that I'm uh, I'm Martin. I have a call, Dara. That's, uh, that's and so uh, that uh, that kind of releases a lot of it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And this is a call. This is one of the calls. They have, they have yeah. no clue what you're doing, but you, exactly. you have a call. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Thanks, Martin. Yeah. Thank you, Nina. Know how uh, how much I appreciate you and uh, and everything that you do on here. So thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Well, that was fast. We've come to the top of the hour. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Any last thoughts as well as 
where can people find you? They want to get in touch with you. Oh, cool. So um, um, you can find me at lornadavis.net, which is my website. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn relatively easily by searching me. And um, I'd love to have a chat. Um, I could be Lorna, I have a call Davis um, <laughs> with anybody who wants to call me. <laughs> and your TED Talk is on YouTube. Well, it's on, it's on the TED website um, and it's also on YouTube. So just Google Lorna Davis TED and uh, L-O-R-N-A-D-A-V-I-S without an E and you'll find me. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Love having you on the call. Thank you so much for doing this series. I look forward to listening to some of the ones I've already missed. Great. Thank you. And thank thanks you. everyone. <laughs>